Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Arthur Petherbridge is the sort of founder of this new uh, hunting community in the UK, in the United Kingdom, called the Wild Order. I wanted to have him on because the UK has a very strange... um, sort of hunting system. Number one, very difficult to get firearms. Number two, very difficult to get permission to hunt places. There's no public land to hunt. But specifically, Arthur's story, because he was a vegetarian. He lived his life the majority as a vegetarian. And um, he just felt like he needed to offer the opportunity for people that are interested in getting closer to their food through hunting he felt like he needed to give this opportunity to others. And so that's how the Wild Order was born. And I wanted to have a conversation with him about it because clearly it fits with our MO. So enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name, my name. is... Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. So where are you right now? Uh, I'm actually in the Isle of Wight, which, um, for those of you I who know, right. a little island uh, beneath the south coast of England. It's actually not that little, but um, 
small enough. Anything to hunt on the Isle of Wight? Say that again. Said anything to hunt on the Isle of Wight? Well, I think um, there is a small population of deer, and you can probably um, there must be pheasant shoots and and that kind of thing. I'm actually not here to hunt. I'm here for Christmas to see my in-laws, um, so I don't know it that well. I think the fishing is pretty good here. There's uh, a big sea fishing industry here, relatively big for for the UK anyway. Um, but I. Uh, I'm quite into sea swimming and I looked at the, we have an app over here called, um, what's it called? Safe Seas and River Services. And uh, they've been dumping raw sewage into the seas here for the last four days. So mm. no, no swimming opportunities at the moment, unfortunately. Talking about sea swimming, did you read the book about the guy that swam around England? I did. What's his name? Ross, um, Ross something or other. Oh my gosh, what a book. Absolutely. Holy smokes, man. I mean, he's a complete madman, isn't he? Yeah, but to have done it. To, I know. To, and, and the way that he was like having to, you know, beat the winter, essentially, right? It was just like, I have to do it the way that I was doing it. It was almost like... The, the pioneers moving across the western United States, you know, having to get through the passes before winter, he had to get through the tip of, you know, Scotland, essentially, yeah. and around the bend before the winter came in, man. And he was swimming sometimes for kind of 20 plus hours. Oh, it was breaking records and left, right, and center for the amount of the distance, yeah. Oh, yeah, amazing, amazing story. I think he recently made another attempt for the longest uh freshwater swim ever but he uh he pulled out because he had he got cellulitis which is a skin infection around chafing so he's uh he's still still attempting these crazy swims well we're not here to talk about swimming <laughs> uh arthur Pifford. I'm going to mess it up. Petheridge? Petherbridge. That's the one. Petherbridge. Sorry, that was a little bit of a mouthful at five o'clock in the morning. Yeah, it's a Cornish um, name. Cornish name. English heritage through your roots? Uh, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> well, Arthur, give us a little bit of introduction to who you are and, 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 and sort of what you do. Yeah. Uh, well, I grew up in London, England, uh, for the international audience. Um, uh, it's actually my second only podcast. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I know. I'm quite nervous. My first ever Don't podcast. Don't be nervous. Don't be podcast. nervous. I love having people um, on as their first podcast or second podcast. I was just... Actually, I don't know if you listen to Joe Rogan or not, but mm -hmm. um, Joe Rogan just had this lady, the bee lady from Texas on. She's like going crazy. Like she's just blowing up in terms of her vir virality. Okay. She goes in and she removes beehives with her bare hands. Wow. Okay. But she's this beautiful blonde, I've right? And you're just like, what? I what is going on here? Eat with her already. Her first podcast ever was Joe Rogan. I mean, that's a so. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Sure. Um, yeah. So the first podcast I did was uh, actually a vegan podcast, interestingly, um, called Conversations with Cultivationists. Anyway. 
Uh, I just thought that was interesting. Is that with Ryan? No. No. Uh, a guy who I, I can't remember his name, actually, embarrassingly. Um, but yeah. Uh, anyway, my background is I grew up a vegetarian um, until I was 19. That's a little bit of interesting information. Did you just decide, like, what, what were your parents vegetarians? Is that why you're a vegetarian? Yeah. So I was, um, I sort of, I'm quite resentful about it, actually. <laughs> oh, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I grew up a vegetarian because my parents were both vegetarians. My mum, actually, they're both actors, and my mother was on a program called Coronation Street. And she witnessed okay. some ladders being born. And that night, she was given lamb chops for dinner. And from that mm. point, she became a vegetarian. And so, by, by uh, you know, being forced into that, I just grew up vegetarian. Didn't eat meat until I was about 19. Did you, were you not even, you, there was no choice, right? There was just like, you have to eat this, you're not allowed to... It wasn't even as a as a as a daring teenager. You didn't sneak sneak around the corner and say, "Shit, I need a McDonald's burger." Yeah, let me try a McDonald's burger. Interestingly, no, I just didn't like meat. I think I because I had just been brought up eating vegetarian food. Um, I just didn't like the idea of it. Just didn't appeal to me uh, mm. until well, I tr I think I mentioned to you. Uh, when we spoke briefly, that I tried some uh, some wild some wild meat in uh, Indonesia when I was nineteen. So, so let's 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 talk about that story because obviously this is the okay. point of the podcast, yeah, right? Sure. I want to know the story, and everyone else wants to know the story. So, you're nineteen years old, haven't had a lick of meat your entire life, yeah. And you went to Indonesia oh, for what reason? Everybody told me that if I ate meat, I'd shit myself or get unwell or whatever it would be. Um, which is a common misconception of being a vegetarian. Were your friends in school all vegetarians too? No, I actually had a Kiwi headmaster who thought I was the strangest boy he had ever met because I didn't eat sausages. And so it's sort of a running thing through my life. People thought I was kind of weird for not eating meat, but it just was the way I was grew up, you know. Mm. Um, anyway, I found myself in Indonesia, uh, Borneo actually, uh, which is Malaysian and Indonesian, um, on a conservation project. And at the end of that, I stayed in a little village called um, Long Lamar. What led you there? Did you... That are running out of people. But this was just like something, as a kid, you're like, oh, I need to go help the orangutans and I'm going to fly halfway around the world to help them? You know, I just wanted to get to the jungle. That was all I wanted. I was just completely obsessed with jungle environments. Um, I didn't, I couldn't really, if, if you had asked me why back then, I wouldn't have been able to answer the question. You didn't study biology or anything like that, that sort of tended you that way? No, no, I wasn't, didn't go to university. Um, I just had a desire to go to the rainforest. Um, and actually subsequently ended up becoming a tree surgeon and getting involved in forestry. So, you know, maybe I was always headed for the trees in some, in some way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you went to Borneo because you felt like you needed to be around orangutans, pet them, save them. Yeah, I just liked the, um, it wasn't, if I'm honest, it wasn't so much about the orangutans. It was just more about having an adventure in the jungle. Uh, oh. 
which it was. We spent 10 months in hammocks in the jungle building a research facility for scientists. Oh, amazing. Um, re, it was a re, yeah, research facility in a big nature reserve that was uh, researching uh, the reintroduction of orphaned orangutans into the wild. Okay, awesome. So it was a pretty cool, pretty cool project. Um, it was, if I'm honest, I suppose a kind of gap year thing. Um, yeah. So looking back on it, yeah, questionable, I suppose. Into, like, why didn't it just get funded and and uh, you know the locals do it? But maybe it wouldn't have happened if that if that was the case. So there's lots of people in that gap year system that are just looking to, as you said, adventure around the world, and will be happy to build things, do things pretty much for free, mm. essentially, to just live in a place and experience a place. Yeah, yeah. And in this 10 months of li living in a hammock, it's easy to be vegetarian in this place? Two, well, it was two months, not 10. I wish it Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I thought you said 10 months. Sorry. I actually, uh, we... Because <laughs> I was about to say, I was like, damn, that is, that's hardcore. Like two months. 10 months in a hammock? Oh, my God. Yeah, that would have been, that would have been pretty cool. No, well, it was easy to eat vegetarian because a vegetarian diet because a lot of the meat was kind of things like spam, you know, that kind of cow meat. Um, mm, okay. It, it being that kind of very humid, damp environment, we we didn't have much fresh food at all. It was all canned. I think I think one of the favorite camp foods was something called mock duck, which was a fake duck. God knows what it was made of, probably soil or something. Um, it was absolutely revolting. So it was pretty easy to eat a vegetarian diet, but when when we left, um, myself and another guy called Tom headed to this village called Lot Lamai, uh, which is a settled uh, village um, that you used to you used to have sort of lots of Penan people in that area, but many okay. of them settled by by the government um, for obvious forestry reasons and mining and things like that. Anyway, we went, we went there to try and see a different side of the jungle from the one that we saw. We wanted to experience hunter-gatherers. We wanted to experience a more sort of wild, wild jungle. Um, and we did. We, we were really lucky and we spent some time with some really cool people, learned how to use blowpipes and Went hunting. Oh man! And I actually met this really cool guy. Can't remember his name, but he had um, this huge chunk missing from his shoulder. It was all scarred over, and via sort of sign language and things like that, because we didn't speak any um, Indonesian, uh, he had he had sort of told us that he had been trying to hunt a monkey and fired a, a poison dart with his blowpipe into a tree. And he had gone up and come straight down and hit him in the shoulder. And um, his hunting partner had to take a huge chunk out of his shoulder with a machete to save his life. So it was a pretty... A poison dart landed, landed up in his shoulder. In his shoulder, like in, you know, just in that soft bit of your shoulder. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. To, like, so it was a pretty rough and ready place, you know. And the people we were staying with, um, they had a, a little girl and a little boy staying with them that weren't, weren't theirs. And... Their, one of their siblings had drowned in the river like three days before we had arrived. It was, you know, it's a real, a real frontier place. Mm, um, mm. 
and so what better place to try out your first first morsel of meat um and that's and that's where it all changed for me and I, I think I said before I was just so impressed by the condition of all the people there all the men who were these sort of ripped amazing glistening examples of 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 men and I felt like this puny uh, sort of skinny white malnourished Englishman which I suppose I was to a degree um and from that day on I thought I need to have meat in my life so talk to me about that that first meal is it like you rock up to dinner and there's meat and you're just like all right you either you're like I'm gonna try this today or it was almost like I don't want to disrespect them. They've cooked this meal, and I'm going to eat it. I think it was it was a, a bit of both. It was definitely I I cannot not eat this because they've they've like presented this on the table very proudly. They've hunted it. They've cooked it. Where what meat was it? Well, it's difficult. I I believe it was a kind of because we didn't speak the language. It was a type of deer. Uh-huh. Um. It definitely it that's what we got from them and now eating having eaten a lot of venison you know i can see the similarity the resemblance very, you know, very lean um it wasn't a gamey flavor at all there was hardly any fat on it but it was cut into these i remember it so well i remember it like you know when if somebody says to you where were you when you when you uh heard about prince diana dying or Princess I remember that exactly, exactly where I was. It, I knew I could, I can see the hut, I can see the table, I can see the people. It was, it's such a poignant moment for me. Um, it was this little wooden bowl of, uh, of this dark brown meat that had been sort of cut into long strips. Okay. Very simply prepared, and yeah, it just it completely blew. No condiments with it, just the meat. No, just the meat. Yeah, just to me, cooked over fire. Um, I think there was like some some moonshine going around because they will make their own uh, kind of banana banana wine or whatever it is. Um, yeah, it was great. Uh, A lot of people that um, are vegan and vegetarian have said that once they had their first like taste of meat, it was almost like there was a sort of energy that went into their body. Like they just, it was something that it was almost revolutionary. I think revolutionary is the wrong word and seems a little um, dramatic, but did that happen to you? Did you feel like, holy shit? You know, it was a long time ago, Robbie. So I'd be lying if I, if I said I remembered that, but you know, I feel like that now. Mm. If I eat, if I have, uh, you know, a, a good a good feed of venison or have some liver or I wake up the next day and I feel a completely different different man to if I've had a, a kind of... We still have, you know, vegetarian meals now and again where we don't eat meat or eggs just because the variation. And I feel... I de- definitely feel less energized and nourished <laughs> on that, on that <laughs> front. Um I just remember it being a poignant moment for me because I was like, holy shit, this is what I've been missing for nearly 20 years. How dare my parents do that to me? No, joking. 
man, it's uh so you so now you obviously let's let's fast forward the clock. Yeah. Um how did you become you obviously have become a hunter. Um when you came back to the U- UK from that stint, was it more like I'm just gonna go to the grocery store and get meat, or did you really have this sort of fundamental outlook to say, I really wanna source more mm. organic venison, or did that almost just become a progression through time? Yeah, I I mean I moved back to London uh after the after that year abroad. Um and I really didn't have that idea in my head of becoming a hunter then at all. I just knew that I wanted to eat more meat. Uh, mm-hmm. so I just went to the shops you mm-hmm. know, and bought and bought meat. And I wasn't even tuned in as many people weren't to, you know, high welfare meats, um, mm-hmm. just kind of ate whatever, um, whatever I could. I, you know, I was terrible at preparing meat terrible at buying meat um and it was kind of a real education for me i really had to sorry my keep getting emails um uh so yeah it was a very slow burn i really only got into hunting um about six or seven years ago um and i got back to england after my time in indonesia about you know it's come along 16 years now um and when I moved out of London, I began to just get more engaged in in the out in, a, in an outdoor kind of country lifestyle. Ended up, I bought an air rifle because I thought it was fun, and then from mm-hmm. that, I started shooting rabbits and squirrels and eating them. And I just there's something about that whole process just really begun to resonate with me, and. I just got hungry and hungry for information and for opportunities and eventually uh, went on a course with a company based down in Sussex and the course was called Deer in a Day and it was basically a, a butchery and cooking course based around uh, skinning a deer, butchering a deer and then learning how to cooking the deer all in one day. With, with other like-minded people and that was that was it for me once I'd done that I I was like right I have to become I have to be able to procure that thing that deer there and do this on my own um as soon as possible yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and that in I mean as a lot of your listeners are probably are in the UK that is actually an incredibly difficult thing to obtain in the UK. It's really not easy. Um, so explain the system in the UK. There's no real public ground that you can go get a license and go uh, hunting, right? We don't have public land, basically, that you can hunt on. We have national parks, um, but they're all... You can't hunt on national parks, though, can you? No, well, you can because they're all privately... The land is privately owned. It's national parks. The United Kingdom's national parks are privately owned. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's a mad system. So take for example um, the South Downs National Park in Sussex, Southern England, big national park created in two thousand five, I think. It's basically all farmland uh, with a bit of woodland, and it's all owned privately 
by people, but it's protected under the sort of national park structure. It's a bizarre, bizarre structure. Do people also come and visit the national park? Say that again. Do they come visit the national park? Do people come visit? Is it like that, or is it more just like a biodiversity designation? Why do people people visit the national park? People walk there. There's lots of footpaths. There's bridleways. There's sort of um, rare chalk grassland. There's protected bits of forest, but it's also heavily farmed. I mean, it's a completely bonkers notion, to be honest. Um, but yeah, we don't have, we have forestry commission land, which I suppose mm-hmm. could be seen as publicly owned, but it's, you can't, you definitely can't hunt there. They have their own rangers that do all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, to, to get into hunting in, in the UK, you really, you need to know or be a landowner, um, and have them give you permission to hunt on their land. But before that, you have to get a firearms license, which is can be a real struggle in the UK, especially if you see. Um, it's a long process. You have to have a mentor uh, that can sort of vouch for your state of mind and all of that. You have to have a certificate from your doctor. You have to have a uh, interview with your firearms officer. You have to show them your gun and safe your insurance, your uh, security in your house. It's pretty, pretty strict in uh, that system, really. Um, so that's quite difficult. And I found it really difficult because I didn't come from a family of hunters. I came from family of vegetarians. So I didn't have that easy path in. I actually was just telling my brother-in-law this story earlier. I actually met this guy called Dave the Forager who who told me the first time I met him that he had been on a mushroom trip and uh, had met the devil. <sighs> I woke up face down, naked, in a puddle, having said he had stared death, his own death. In... This is a dream or this is reality? Well, it was all, the whole thing was quite sketchy. Or was he on a mushroom trip? Yeah, through this guy called Dave the Forager, I met this guy called Gary who then became my mentor and uh, he enabled me to get what's known as an open license. So, which now means I can hunt wherever I want, however I want, as long as I have the landowner's permission. And that's kind of the holy grail in the UK is, is this thing called an open license. Um, it means that if you had a garden and you had deer in your garden, I could just sit in your bedroom window and shoot deer. Take out a deer. Um, but let's go back to the uh, the mushroom laying naked in a puddle. Oh yeah, story. What? What? Dave what? Forager, absolute man. So who is Dave the Forager? He was this guy I had a random uh, meeting with through a mutual friend, and he knew that I wanted to become a hunter, and he was sort of trying to uh, help me meet up with this guy called Gary, who ended up being okay, but. <laughs> he it's a bit of a niche world this kind of hunting scene so you end up meeting real characters anyway Dave the forager on me first meeting him told me a story whereby he had a mushroom trip 
and ended up naked, face down in a puddle, having just met the devil. And I was thinking, do I really want to get into hunting with <laughs> this guy? Um, anyway, he ended up being a very valuable contact. And without that meeting with Dave the Forager, who met the devil naked, face down in a puddle, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have ended up getting Gary as my mentor and, um, who actually was also completely illiterate. So when I had to get a letter of recommendation to my firearms officer, he couldn't write it for me. So, or read. Wow. So it was, you know, it was a struggle. But he's a great guy, Gary, and an amazing butcher in Eastbourne. If he's all thanks, Gary. Um, yeah, so that was my path into hunting. And from there, I ended up getting some permission on, in a small block of woodland. Um, and, uh, is it difficult to get permission? Is it? Is it because America, you know, old school America, from a hunting perspective, is like just go knock on people's doors, farmers' doors, and say, "Hey, you need some help managing your deer population. I'd love to kill a couple of does. I'm not interested really in trophies. Just you know, interested in putting meat in the freezer. Is that easy or relatively difficult, or is pretty much impossible in the UK? I think I would put it in the relatively difficult bracket, um, mm. depending on where you live in 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 the UK and what your background is, has a significant effect on your availability to hunting grounds. Um, I was lucky. I met somebody who who owned a small bit of woodland, and they said, "Yeah, sure, you can go and take a few does." Um, or a few bucks if you want. Um, but it's basically door knocking, going to farms, um, and trying to be as charming as possible and getting permission of that way. Uh, a lot of the ground is tied up um, by either um, hunt, hunting syndicates uh, or people that have leased large areas of land, or they've just managed to get um, many thousands of acres for their own stalking and become extremely protective over it and they won't they won't share it they won't um invite other people in and that becomes a real problem one because you have they can't manage the the deer numbers across those acres that they have um and two it just it really hinders other people getting intern hunting because there's nowhere for them to to hum. Um are people protective of those areas because they're making money in those areas because I know that in the, in the UK it's very different than the US and that food deer that you shoot can go into the food chain and you can sell them yeah and so there is a business tied to quote unquote deer stalking yeah I think in the past people were make, were definitely making quite good money from venison sales um, at the moment, the venison price in the UK is about two pounds a kilo for a headshot deer. A chest shot deer, you'd be doing well if you got one pound thirty kilo from a game, mm. um, which is an entirely different subject, which I have quite strong feelings over. But anyway, I know that that, that venison market tanked during COVID. Yeah. It did. Um, because people weren't going in the restaurants and restaurants weren't looking for venison. Has yeah. it not come back? 
it has come back, but the problem is, like so many things, the, the price plummeted and um, people, the game dealers especially, dictate that price. Um, mm. And if they just only want to pay £2 and you've got 20 deer in your chiller, it's either you're going to take that price or they're all going to end up, you know, just rotting away in the, in the woods or something. Um, I actually sell direct to people so i would sell because there's something called the hunter's exemption in the uk so you can sell uh small quantities of of wild uh venison directly to a consumer in uh. as soon as you start breaking it down you go down the sort of food business route which i try to avoid so i just sell entire animals to people direct i, I don't bother going to game dealers um so I think venison prices are going up, but it's definitely tough. And two pounds a kilo is pretty bad when you consider. What was it? What was the price? It was about three pounds fifty. Okay, so it almost double. Makes yeah, it makes a big difference. Um, uh, people, I think uh, Waitrose, which is a, a fancy supermarket in the UK, they they're currently buying venison from Park, from Deer Parks, not farms, but Deer Parks. Uh, for five pounds a kilo damn yeah and selling it for about 20 25 yeah exactly exactly it's a racket um so yeah i i think people do make money but but more often than not they're they're protective over it because they don't want other people to come in and, and wreck their hunting opportunities or because um they don't want to lose their stalking that they've had for for a long time I don't know. It's I always invite lots of people to my bit of land. I like having people there. Um, when I say my bit of land, I mean the the permission that I have. Um, I like sharing it with people. I think that's great. And if if Gary uh, hadn't shared his bits of land with me, I never would have had the opportunity to learn, you know, how to hunt properly. Um, Do you think that the the land permission possessiveness is the is the of is the biggest barrier of entry to hunting in the uk no i don't actually i think the biggest barrier to hunting is the perception that it's uh a pastime of the elite which it kind of is because it's such an expensive thing to get into in the uk it's just and on top of that you know the the farms licensing side of things are really difficult as well um, so I think the land access combined with the perception that it's an elitist pastime are kind of the, the biggest barriers. And then people's just general disconnection with the outdoors, nature and food. Um, people just don't, I don't know, a lot of people just don't want to engage maybe in that way or are so disconnected that it, but it feels like an impossible thing to, for them to to get mm. um yeah it's a big problem in the uk i think and that's partly why i guess we're sat here today yeah absolutely did the um let me ask this i'm, I'm curious can someone say i'm someone from london i'm interested in hunting my own food mm. but i don't want to go through the whole like get a license, get a gun, get permission, whatnot. Can I come to you 
and let you walk with me and I shoot a deer with your gun. And essentially I have hunted and taken the deer and even maybe have practiced that morning yeah. and then take the deer with me and it'd be completely legal. Yeah, you, that's exactly what you can do. Um, I think the... can't remember the exact sort of legal standpoint, but as long as you're within ear or eye shot line uh, of the person that has the firearms license, you can legally hunt with them. So yeah, somebody from London or wherever could come out with me, uh, fire a few shots down range, and then come out and uh, come shoot it. Uh-huh. 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 Yeah. But it's not an ideal scenario, really, because it's often those opportunities to to take to take an animal are, are quite quick, aren't they? And sure, only had you know a couple of shots at a paper target. It's you're pretty unprepared to to then shoot at the real thing in a rushed manner. Uh, mm-hmm. But at least you can you can be guided. I think in this country. I could say I had a thousand acres that I managed the deer population on. I could uh, sell a roebuck hunt for say two hundred pounds, and you could come out with me, and uh, I'd guide you around my land. We'd see a roebuck, and we could shoot a roebuck, and it cost two hundred quid. Um, that's that's a thing over here. Yeah, yeah, and and that makes sense. Or you could go to a a deer park. And probably do the same thing in a, in a slightly more managed scenario, but that's completely different. Well, that makes sense. It, it, that's a guided hunt type scenario. I just wanted to, given the gun laws in the UK, I didn't know, you know, if there was even something, you know, tied to that. Yeah. Um. So because of this, the as you said, when I asked the question about barriers of entry, the sort of the classes, the sort of elitists, you know, elitism mm. of 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 what hunting is perceived as. Do you think that's the reason why you were like, screw this, I need to do something? And the wild order was essentially born out of that? Yeah. Uh, well, I think, yes, definitely. One of my, you know, I just got really fed up of uh, people being opposed to hunting that were completely uneducated in hunting. And people they just viewed it as something that that it really isn't so that was my first my first real driving point to to do something about hunting in the UK and secondly access opportunity and to 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 stop it being uh seen as a sort of elitist thing and just to open the doors um for everybody so so we have a more diverse crowd instead of you know overweight middle-class men in tweet that's probably gonna mm. drop people off but that's basically what it's seen as and is to a degree um certainly in the shotgun world in the uk you know people's people standing on pegs shooting 400 birds in a day for three thousand pounds a gun you know which is kind of what a pheasant shoot can be in the uk and i think that um causes a lot of problems in terms of people's perception of hunting um yeah yeah sure so yeah those are the things and i just i also wanted there's as i mentioned earlier there's a real um lack of engagement in 
nature and the outdoors and connection with, with our food. And I felt like I should do something about that because I myself am so passionate about it and I'm lucky that I can enjoy it whenever I want. I can go as long as I, I'm within the, the shooting seasons in the UK, I can go out anytime I want during legal night and do what I love. And I felt like that should be something that anybody can have. Um, I did, I did think when I was thinking about this podcast, I thought, you know, I would prefer it if I could just keep hunting as a sacred thing for myself. I wouldn't have to have an Instagram account. I wouldn't have to have um, all these things to kind of think about promote. I could just have it as a very pure pursuit. Yeah, the thing just for you. Just for me. Because that's how it started for me. It was a very uh, important way of me procuring my meat. But over time, I just got, you know, kind of resentful of of the way it was perceived. And hence, the birth of the wild order. So so what is the the true purpose of the wild order? Because it seems like you've got multiple things in your brain that are like, I want to do this and this, this and this. But... It seemed more based on what I've seen and the very little that I've been engaged in it is giving the opportunity to those that may not have opportunity, right? It is really breaking down that elitist class of you can do this, you can engage in hunting and here's, let me show you how. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it, it's, all, it's all about access um, and yeah, opening the door to, to the world that, took me three three or four years to, to really break down um, and part of that is that we're we're trying to have a on every course we're trying to have a sponsored position so even though uh, we're trying to keep it open and accessible to everybody it still ends up being you know a little bit pricey because because of the way we have to uh, rent an estate to hunt on or you have to sure, sure. Um, have access to barns and chillers and and accommodation. So from that, I decided to have a sort of scholarship position on every course. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to, to um, follow through on that promise as of yet, but I hope that we will be able to in the coming coming years be able to sort of have have an opportunity that if somebody can't afford to come on the course they, that's it will be funded for them um i think that's that's quite an important part of the world order's kind of mission statement so tell me about the sort of cadre how many you've done one course or two courses yeah we've done one course we've got another two um coming up in spring next year our first give me an idea of the cadre of people that came with their first course because it seemed like they were quite diverse in terms of yeah the people yeah we had uh, a real a real uh, mix of people from all over the country we had people from ireland people from london people from scotland um which was great we had both women and men which was also pretty amazing because i was sure that we were going to struggle having that kind of diversity. Uh, they all filled in forms uh, before booking onto the course about sort of why they wanted to 
do this and what they thought they were going to get out of it. And all of them really had very similar things to say that they wanted to uh, be connected to their food in a deeper, more meaningful way. They wanted, they felt like they had to, um, to be able to eat meat uh, sort of in a guilt-free manner, uh, be able to, to kill an animal and, and go through that process. Um, they wanted to engage in nature. Um, some of them had like, you know, watched Meat Eater and wanted to like go, they got in, they sort of got engaged by that route. And, um, but yeah, they, they were all really wanting to engage in, in procuring meat basically from themselves. Um, and that was great to see, but none of them could find a way in, um, because that doesn't really exist in the UK or it's different mind. Mm. So how do you, how do you, so these guys do the course, how do they have a way in after the course? Well, I think what we aim to do is we aim to empower them, uh, through information. So firstly, they, they, they obviously, they get to spend time on a range. They get to go hunting. They get to kill an animal. Hopefully if they get the opportunity, they get to butcher it, skin it, butcher it, um, and all of those things. So they're, they're pretty knowledgeable, uh, with that side of hunting, uh, straight off the bat, once they've done our course. And then they, throughout the week, we have little, uh, workshops on, uh, gun law, uh, procuring a firearm license, uh, where, where else you can, uh, become qualified. So you, there is, uh, couple of courses in the UK, one called the DSC one, DSC, DSC certificate one and two, and, and they're incredible, uh, courses that will give you a lot of information, but they're pretty old fashioned, uh, but it can help you to get your firearms license. Uh, and then we also invite a lot of them, uh, to come and continue their hunting with us, um, in our own, on our own permissions once they've gone through the course. So. In, in a way, a kind of mentorship uh, through the Wild Order, if we like them, that is, obviously. <laughs> I wish we did. They're all great. Um, and then I think the main thing it does is it enables these people, whoever comes on the course, to become engaged, to figure out whether or not they want to take it further without really committing to a, like a very long-winded training process through the DSC one or DSC two, um, or getting a firearms license and then they can go into the world and with, with information, which is the main, which is the main thing you need to, to progress. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. And a lot of them have, uh, since been in touch with me and they're all desperate to come out down South and come hunting again. And, which is amazing, you know, I love that. Mm -hmm. I really loved seeing people uh, in, engage properly with the landscape and, and with wild animals. He just put this huge smile on my face. It was a cool thing to see, really cool. Well, as I said, um, the, the, it's one of the reasons I reached out and, and wanted to learn more about the wild order, essentially, is um, 
you know, anytime someone is trying to break down perceptions around hunting, introduce non-hunters into the world of hunting, make them, you know, let them become hunters and sort of like we've talked about sort of really understanding and you gave a little bit of, uh, of it, like, why are they deciding to do it? And as you said, the majority of them were deciding because I want to be closer to my food, understand where my food comes from. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of, and, uh, that's why I wanted to have you on and obviously your background and your vegetarian background and, and sort of, you know, that lends itself to the story of, of, of who you are and, Again, lends it lends itself very well to why you've built the wild world in the way that you built it. Well, it's pretty cool to be on the Blood Origins podcast. So yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, it's not that big a deal, man. Come on. <laughs> well, you know who who would have thought that a little vegetarian from London would end up on the Blood Origins podcast, huh? Uh, look, we're we're all about having vegetarians, so it's it's. Probably not too far of a stretch of the imagination to have vegetarian on here, so. Fair. That's fair. Well, Arthur, you have a great time, man. Enjoy uh, your time on the island and uh, don't yeah. swim in the waters. Yeah. Um, and uh, thank you. Let us know if we can do anything for you, okay? Absolutely. Well, check out the Wild Order. <laughs> yeah, how can people find out more about the Wild Order? Uh, you can, probably the easiest way is by Instagram, at the Wild Order. Nice and easy handle. Or um, our website, which is uh, thewildorder.com. Amazing. Can't believe that that handle was still available. I the Wild Order. Imagine. Imagine that. Arthur, thank you. Thanks, Robbie. Take care. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.